Just before we get to that, though, everyone likes hearing stories. Any particularly memorable stories? And you sit in nature under the Gary Oaks or Arbutus on mm. South Saturna. You be present and patient and watch the sea lions. Everything from indigenous communities being treated as equal business partners in ventures, as Roy mentioned. They're asking them to take a pledge where they say, I will go beyond addressing the impacts of my organization's emissions and strive to be carbon positive. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... When I was young, I was told that. And I said, well, what are the other things that we really need to know besides respect? And he says, and my mom said, no, it's just respect. That's the first law. There are no others. (laughs) (laughs) Everything moves downstream. It's the headwater. Absolutely. morning along the Wild Pacific Trail in Euclid, British Columbia. Tourists from around the world come here to walk atop the trail's dramatic cliffs and watch storms and waves roll in from the Pacific Ocean. On calm days, patient viewers may even spot a whale or two gently breaking the surface. Laura Chu spent two summers in this area as a naturalist and guide while completing her Bachelor of Tourism Management program at Capilano University. One of her profs there was Roy Jensen, a published author who owns an ecotourism and consulting company. Ian met with Laura and Roy to discuss wildlife viewing, climate responsible travel, and equitable engagement with local First Nations. So my name is uh, Roy Jansen, and I teach at Capilano University in international ecotourism, as well as tourism and climate change. I'm a, a settler, I'm a European descendant on the traditional and ancestral territory of Coast Salish peoples here on the West Coast and uh, happen to live in Port Moody, which today I'm calling from and it's Coquitlam First Nations and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations Territory. Thanks, Roy. Uh, My name is Laura Chu. I'm a student at Capilano University in the Tourism Management Program. And I also think it's very important to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from the North Vancouver District, also in British Columbia. And that's part of the Coast Salish traditional and ancestral territories particularly the Lilwat, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Thank you, Roy and Laura. Needless to say, the pandemic has hit many industries very hard. Tourism as a whole, including ecotourism, has perhaps been one of the hardest hit industries. And in many cases, it's just been put right on pause. Though on one hand, this has resulted in less air travel and as a result, less burning of fossil fuels, There have also been many localized negative impacts on wildlife conservation. Let's unpack that. Roy, how about you start us off? Very good. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, It's an honor to be here uh, with Green Teacher Magazine and the podcast, and uh, thank you very much for the invite. 
I, I would uh, normally say at this time of year, we would have uh, just been coming back from Christmas holidays. And a lot of my colleagues would have come from other parts of the world and had stories of uh, ecotourism destinations that they've gone to and reports. But of course, nobody is doing that this year and that uh, goes worldwide. And honestly, uh, as I get my news, I get my news from places like CBC and start to hear what's happening in other ecotourism destinations around the world. And one that comes to my mind today is uh, in Africa, in Rwanda and Virunga National Park uh, in the mountain range where up to 20,000 people per year go in and uh, see gorillas. Um, view gorillas. The gorillas have been habituated to the presence of humans and guides uh, bring tourists close enough to observe them and because of COVID-19 um, and us, uh, we have our own social distancing, the same applied with the, uh, with the gorillas and uh, there was such a worry that uh, COVID-19 could be spread through mountain gorillas that uh, people are not able to go in there anymore. But if you think about it, 20,000 visitors per year uh, is a large chunk of change and that money isn't going into those communities. So the recent news story I saw on TV was that uh, without the money, other uh, there's other issues, including poaching of gorillas and uh, at least one silverback has been poached since last March. And you have to remember, there's really a, a very limited number of mountain gorillas in the world. So these communities are looking for other ways to, uh, for money, uh, because they existed on ecotourism to bring that income in. Laura is one of my former students, and I know she'll have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks, Roy. As you said, it's, it's a really tricky situation because getting those tourists back is not just key for the community, but also for the gorillas. As you mentioned, when there's no tourists inbound, there's less money in the community. And something that comes along with that is often these um, megafauna, very charismatic megafauna like gorillas or elephants or rhinos are protected through militarization, um, which is when the military or guards come in with often with weapons and lots of different infrastructure to protect those charismatic megafauna. And so that's a bit of a reactive solution that only maintains the commodification of wildlife. It's a tricky solution, but it's hard. We need to not only rely on inbound tourists to protect the wildlife, but also build support out of the local communities. So diversification of income is one solution. This could look like expanding tourism operations beyond just ecotourism ventures with the gorillas to include community homestays, and definitely opportunities for career advancement for local people in their workplace as well. In general, in ecotourism, we strive for a really holistic and balanced practice that will support an area financially, environmentally, as well as socioculturally. Well said, and with those kinds of transitions, uh, a lot of it has to do with education, education of people and supporting educational practices. Yeah, and that transitions really nicely to one of our three core topics today, and the first one being wildlife tourism practices. And Roy, you're working on a book right now, and you were kind enough to send along some advanced versions of some chapters that you're writing about uh, whale watching in two different locations around Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And the regulations or guidelines for viewing these populations of whales are very different. There's the southern resident killer whale population off the south coast of Vancouver Island in the Salish Sea, 
And then a little bit farther north on the west near Tofino and Yuklula, you've got viewing of the mainly migratory gray whale population. There are about 80 local resident individuals, but how does viewing differ between those two populations? Well, I've, I've had a, been very fortunate this past uh, summer to be able to do some research and sat out at a lighthouse on the south end of Saturna Island to learn about the southern resident killer whale population. It turns out there's only 73 of those whales uh, in three different pods, and that's about a 25% decline since, <clears throat> since 1995. And those whales happen to be in a shipping lane. So if you just pull out a map and take a look at the Strait of Juan de Fuca that goes between the Olympic Peninsula and southern Vancouver Island where Victoria is, uh, you'll see that it's a relatively narrow pathway that uh, ships from Asia come through to uh, get to the ports in Vancouver and uh, on Vancouver Island. And uh, those whales happen to, that happens to be their main stomping ground and that's their, <laughs> their main foraging areas. So ship traffic has a great uh, effect on whales. One, because of the speed that ships go, there's potential impact issues. But the other is with increasing speed comes increasing noise. And uh, whales in particular uh, in the ocean, they communicate completely through sound um, and it's just so critical. And so the slowdown of ships, uh, both not just uh, container ships coming in, but uh, commercial fishery sh uh, uh, boats, as well as recreational, everybody needs to slow down in the areas of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So I, I mentioned that because there's only uh, 73 southern resident killer whales and their numbers are going down. So uh, in the book that you just mentioned that I'm writing, I'm advocating in that area for shore-based viewing. Now, that's not to say there is a lot of tourism whale watching companies that are out there that ply the waters to go see these whales. But as I write towards what I'm hoping is the future of uh, whale watching, that more people will become familiar with something called the Whale Trail. It's a, 20, it's a Saturna Island where I was, is one place and a 2,400 kilometer stretch between California and Alaska. And it has shore-based viewing areas. And I contend that in a place like that, you sit and spend your day putting yourself in the right place at the right time and you scan the horizon and you bring a picnic and you relax and you sit in nature under the Gary Oaks or, or Buda Sun mm. South Saturna. You be present and patient and watch the sea lions, which will almost certainly be there and the seals. And if you're lucky, a river otter and hey, maybe killer whales will show up because out of all places on the West Coast, that's one of the most common places they're seen from the shoreline. And it's a different way of thinking about whale watching but if you are, do happen to be in a boat, there's the BC Cetacean Sightings Network, and they have whale-wise guidelines for people to be between 100 and 400 meters away, depending on what the whales are doing, depending on whether there's a, a young with a mother whale, depending on whether they are feeding. And so there are guidelines on the internet, really easy to find, type in 
southern resident killer whale watching guidelines and you'll find graphics that focus people have on their boats with them. But I'm, I guess I'm suggesting on the, at least on the southern killer whale, resident killer whales, um, I'm suggesting not to be really in a boat at all. There's no sense putting more traffic in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, watch from land. And Saturn is not the only place. There are San Juan Island, in fact, and American side is probably among the best places, are, as are places on uh, South Pender Island and uh, over on Vancouver Island, on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, out by Souk. So that's my sort of thinking on the Southern uh, uh, residents. On the other hand, you just mentioned the gray whales. There's 20,000 gray whales that ply the coast between Baja Peninsula and the west coast of Vancouver Island. And, you know, they're on a 20,000, 16 to 22,000 kilometer round trip journey. Yeah, and, thanks uh, for coming out, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and these whales are, uh, there's, there's quite a number of them, and there's a lot of whale watching operations that have really good environmental education messaging. And there's a really good reason to get people out and hear that environmental education message with the boat operators, of which there's probably about 20 different boat operators, because people like somebody that I met out there, Jim Darling, who's a whale researcher of oh, 46 years or so. He sees yeah. these whales as being very much part of the communi uh, community of Tofino, Ukulip, Pacific Rim National Park, and has watched over four decades whale watching companies going out and, and viewing the whales. And he has not seen a noticeable disturbance of the whales from the whale watching operators. And I thought that was really encouraging. So knowing that some portion of a ticket price goes to research, um, yeah. knowing that environmental education messaging is getting out. I see that quite differently than I do Southern resident killer whales on Southern Vancouver Island. There's certainly no one size fits all and it's species specific, it's season dependent, it's population dependent. I mean, you've got the Northern resident, Southern resident killer whales around Vancouver Island, and then you've got the transients that are feeding mainly on marine mammals. And it's totally different, and that's all just within the one species. And that doesn't include the, the many, many other populations of killer whales all across the globe. I mean, they, they do have that global distribution. When I was out in Euclid and Tofino and got to know Orange Crush, one of the individual resident gray whales, I don't know if either of you have, have met Orange Crush, but that was one that just kept popping up. Uh, at the surface of the water, but we were really impressed with the environmental education that happened on the vessels, the whale watching vessels. And I know, Laura, you've had experience with that and can really speak directly to the role that a guide has in interpreting species that are sensitive. Yes, I have. I've worked as a guide and as a naturalist for a couple different ecotourism businesses in the past. And I think the guide has such a huge role in really and really changing the guest experience from just any other tourism expedition they're on to really immersing them in a good ecotourism experience, you know, through engaging the client and hopefully changing their mind or perspective and maybe even igniting a new passion or interest in marine conservation for them. So I think it really is important for tourists to seek out those quality ecotourism businesses when they are going to go whale watching because it can make such a difference not just in marine mammal well-being but also in hopefully giving them a little bit more of the inside scoop and and learning a bit more from that experience but overall guides have a huge role and responsibility 
in the experience of the guest. Everything from knowing the regulations, managing customer expectations, leading with respectful practices. They really have the potential to evoke wonder in guests through sharing their knowledge and their understanding. So if you've got somebody who's quite new to, say, whale watching or wildlife viewing and they want to have a guide who, who is being ethical, what are some things that they can look for? That's a good question. I think a good place to start when many of us are looking for a business to go with is just by checking out their website. And a good ecotourism business should have you know, reference to their ethical practices and be outlining some yeah. of their guidelines. Um, some that come to mind... Ocean Outfitters in Tofino is an amazing carbon neutral whale watching and marine mammal viewing outfitters. For Southern Vancouver Island, there's Eagle Wing Tours based in Victoria. And both these businesses, as soon as you really start looking into them, you're seeing, you're seeing the accolations and the recognition they've gotten for being uh, so dedicated to giving back to the very environment that they're operating in. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. We'll talk a bit more later in the episode about being carbon neutral and carbon offsets. What, what are some of the carbon offsetting practices that those organizations use? Maybe I could speak to that one, uh, Ian, just if we're, <laughs> I, as I teach tourism and climate change in one of my courses, and I look at maybe not uh, one single organization or one single business like Ocean Outfitters so much as I look at what the uh, larger Uh, larger trade associations are doing in ecotourism and adventure mm -hmm. travel. And perhaps one place that I would, I would lead you is to go online and look at the Adventure Travel Trade Association's Climate Actions Initiatives Plan for 2020. So this is an association that oversees probably hundreds, if not thousands, of adventure tour companies and tries to guide their behavior and how they plan in their business along in social, cultural, environmental lines. And maybe one thing is at the, at the outset for a business to say that, publicly say that we understand that there is a climate emergency and the, what we do going forward recognizes that there's a climate emergency. So for instance, the ATTA, the Adventure Travel Trade Association, they say, you know, develop your climate emergency plan. And so when Laura says you need to think about what businesses ask questions, ask questions of a company that you're about to go with. I'm suspecting a lot of listeners of this podcast are consumers and possibly ecotourism consumers. And if you're asking questions like, um, how do you cut carbon emissions? Um, how do you advocate for change? Don't be a passive consumer and actively uh, uh, ask questions. So just a, a few things that companies do consider 
are things like looking at their operational processes and looking for what things are, uh, what parts of their business are more carbon intensive, looking at their food supply chains and reevaluating those to better understand their footprint and then try to find pathways to source locally, which outfitters in Tofino certainly do, um, who are kayak companies. Reevaluating your material supply chains and um, looking at your business operations, including the outdoor equipment that you have and extending that knowledge of what you learn onto your clients. You mentioned, Ian, offsetting of emissions, and that's the idea, just for your listeners, the idea of offsetting is uh, providing money to offset your emissions for the emissions that you created so somebody else can use that money to put into something to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. So for instance, like planting trees in a forest in another country. The other uh, thing that I, I, I noticed at the Adventure Travel Trade Association is they have something where they're encouraging their companies to do more than just their share. So they're asking them to take a pledge where they say, I will go beyond addressing the impacts of my organization's emissions and strive to be carbon positive through carbon offsetting, removing a minimum of two times the carbon impact of my business. So that is pretty forward thinking. And I don't know any companies at the current, currently that are doing that, um, not locally. But to be saying that I'm going to do more than my share is a different way of thinking. And finally, there is ways of doing direct air capture. So direct carbon air capture and putting money towards that. And certainly taking responsibility for the emissions of your travelers. So if you're an ecotourism company and you work on the west coast of Vancouver Island, what can you do to see where your clients come from and say, well, what can I do within my company to offset some of their emissions or all of their emissions and uh, or certainly make it possible so they can choose to do that. And then finally, and I'm always going to say this at the end of every, every question you ask me, probably it's educating the public, educating your travelers, educating yeah. the ecotourists always. and uh, about, and that is what a good guide is doing. And that's why Laura said it's a big responsibility because it is a big responsibility to educate properly. Oh, yes. Finger snaps from me, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really does make you think, you know, every dollar you spend is, is a vote for the type of world you want. So whether you're a teacher, mm. you know, booking an ecotourism field trip, or you're just a tourist yourself, it makes complete sense to me to go the extra mile to support ethical and environmentally conscious tourism. We talked about earlier how some of the whale watching organizations on the west coast of Vancouver Island put a certain amount of their earnings into research. Could climate change mitigation, carbon offsets, kind of take a similar model where you're saying, okay, this amount is going towards research, this amount is going towards planting X number of trees? You know, is that something that could resonate with consumers? I mean, I have a, a couple thoughts to add to that. I think it mm -hmm. definitely could. I think it's maybe the future, you know, when you book your ticket and you see your ticket breakdown, maybe 10% of your ticket goes towards carbon offsetting for the fuel your boat used or for the operations of the office you're booking out of. So as well as, as well as maybe climate offsetting or sorry, carbon offsetting your ticket, I can see also 
standardizing having a certain percentage of ticket revenue going into local marine conservation and local environmental initiatives definitely i would add that you know we don't really think twice when we go to the airport and there's an airport improvement fee that is added to our ticket it just is yep. it's just part of that we don't uh, uh, when we go to a gas a gas station to put gas in our car and you look at the breakdown of you know we're not just paying for the gas we're paying for taxes that are local that are provincial that are federal once these things are rolled right into the framework an organizational framework of how you purchase something you don't question it anymore it just becomes it is what it is and it really is a matter of prioritizing it in the framework mm -hmm. we do that for gas because we need gas taxes to create the roads and maintain the roads that are out there <laughs> it's right. just it's a given yeah and it makes sense because I think a cynic might say, well, you know, you add an extra fee and then another fee and then another fee. And then all of a sudden you can't compete in the marketplace and people are like, oh, I'm not going to buy this ticket if it's got three or four add-on fees. But you're right, if it's rolled mm -hmm. in, not that I think an, an organization shouldn't be transparent about it. And I think that's increasingly a selling point, at least for the folks who consume ecotourism to, to use that turn a phrase. I think that is something that more and more people are looking for. I think um, yeah. ecotourists are more familiar with the idea of externalizing costs onto the environment. And yeah. Perhaps uh, the low, uh, you know, a, a regular person isn't as familiar with that. And once people start accepting that we have the prices we have for certain things because we have not incorporated the externalized costs in the environment, then maybe they'll be more accepting. Yeah, and you mention adding fees and adding fees and suddenly that tour becomes less desirable, but you also have to think on the other hand, if nothing changes and you keep adding tourists and adding tourists, suddenly you're gonna have you know, no whales and you're gonna have a, right. a poor quality environment. So it goes both ways. Yeah, and when I worked in international ecotourism, the, the company I worked for only did small group tours, and that was a huge selling point. And for anyone who's been on a whale watching vessel, if you're on a boat with 100 people compared to a boat with 20 people, it's a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. You know, the photos that you're going to get, <laughs> that you're going to share with your friends later, are going to be very, very different. So those details certainly matter. It's time for a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Continuing with the geographic theme of the west coast of Vancouver Island, uh, we've talked about Tofino and Euclid, and Euclid is a very small community that really balloons in the tourist season. It's home to the Nuchanoth First Nations. We said we were going to talk about Indigenous travel guidelines, and I think there is a lot of hesitancy of folks who are not of Indigenous heritage to share Indigenous culture in a respectful way. And there's some really illuminating guidelines that can guide really anyone in doing that in a respectful and accurate way. So do you want to start on, on some of those guidelines, Roy? 
Uh, certainly, and I'm going to acknowledge that actually I'm pulling this straight from uh, G Adventures. It used to be called the Gap Adventures. They have pulled together some guiding principles for responsible Indigenous tourism, and they are doing it in other parts of the world. So the idea is that when they go into a small community in Indonesia or in uh, Suriname or something like that, they are certain that the guides who are running their trips, that there's guiding principles for that. And, and this isn't to say that you couldn't apply that same idea to the neutral people um, who are uh, running operations out of Euculip that you just mentioned. So just a few of these, for example, would be consider equitable engagement. Are the Indigenous communities treated as equal business partners? So as a, mm -hmm. as a consumer, can you see that there, that there is, is an equitable engagement because the Indigenous communities themselves should be the ones who are determining the level of their involvement in tourism activities. Now, I can assure you that that's got to be the case here on the west coast of Vancouver Island, but from the people I know who are Indigenous who live in uh, British Columbia on the west coast, that they can determine, but that's not the case worldwide. So I just, no. um, I just want to, I just want to uh, parse this di the difference between what we have here in Canada, Ian, and yep. perhaps indigenous communities in places like Bolivia, uh, who might be struggling for other reasons. And the other guidelines are business values, so respecting traditional values, customs, and conventions throughout all the business transactions looking at local ownership and direct benefits from tourism through local ownership. And uh, I know G Adventures, who created these guidelines, really pushes the idea that they are wanting to uh, look for entre entrepreneurs in local Indigenous communities to take up ownership. Minimum payment of living wages opportunities for advancement, employment uh, of, lo of local Indigenous peoples. So it's not people from overseas coming in and being the guides in places like that. So these are all examples of, uh, of Indigenous guidelines. And i go back and maybe end on one here that as a guide, if you are telling a story or sharing a narrative that is of First Nations culture, you don't want to be sharing that without an acceptance from somebody from a First Nations community where that story comes from. You don't want to be putting that story out there without approval and, uh, and just asking to tell that story mm -hmm. from the community shows mm -hmm. respect to the community. So that would be an example of a guide of mm -hmm. how they would be responsible for that. Laura, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I do. Actually, in 2018 and 2019, I was lucky enough to live and work in Tofino and Euclid, which, Ian, you mentioned is home to the New Channel North people, lots of communities, including the Tleokwit First Nations. And to me, when I think about equitable engagement, you mentioned a lot of work has been done in Canada, but it's compared to other countries around the world, of course, but it's still a work in progress. So very much equitable. So. Yeah, equitable engagement to me is really putting in the work to remove every barrier possible for Indigenous participation in ecotourism. And I think it's an, an opportunity to try and heal some of the really terrible impacts of colonialism on Indigenous peoples by building a future in ecotourism together. So yeah, what this looks like to me is 
everything from indigenous communities being treated as equal business partners in ventures, as Roy mentioned, to you know, skills and employment training opportunities for career advancement, of course, informed consent of development and so many other ways. There's still a lot of work to be done. I'll just add uh, locally, whatever location your listeners are in, look for a native tourism association. And here in, in British Columbia, we call it the First Nations Tourism Association of British Columbia. But I'm sure Ontario probably has the same. Other uh, mm-hmm. places across Canada would have the same. And, and the same would go in other places of America. See what the tourism associations are for the local Indigenous people and what it is they do and find a way to support them. Yeah, you know, the piece about sharing the stories to kind of crystallize it, it really just comes down to consent, accuracy, and citing the sources. Make sure that you're allowed to share the story. Make sure you've got it right. Say where it's from. And it can be done. I mean, we, (laughs) I always bring up this example. When I used to work at Algonquin Park, we did this survey children's program of the park's history and we jumped right from the last period of glaciation to the beginning of the logging era in the 1830s (laughs) and i remember in preparing for this program (laughs) in my my first summer working there i just kind of you know at the lunch break was like i do you think maybe we missed a few millennia something (laughs) And, and and they're like yeah well you know it just kind of a, no one knows how to do it. I was like, well, let's let's just talk to the local Algonquin people. So it was really one phone call said, all right, we don't want to have this gap in our children's programming when we're talking about park history, but we want to make sure that we're being accurate and we're being respectful. What are some guidelines for doing it? And we were very warmly received and, you know, it was like, this is a great way to do it and develop this great relationship and solve this issue of plugging this gap of, many, 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 many millennia. So getting to know the community is just so key. One really great book that I read over the last several years was Thomas King's Inconvenient Indian. Yes. To help help one understand that some of that history that we, that has passed by, that we are either don't know or are ignoring. And to me, that was very valuable. And I think, I think Thomas King got a order of Canada this year. So (laughs) I, I bring it up because he is very well respected. Yeah, I read Greengrass Running Water in grade 12. That was like my big year-end book report essay. I mean, it, was, it was a while ago, but yes, uh, wonderful author, Thomas King. If, if you're listening, great stuff. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll and talk congratulations about... on your Order of Canada. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Before we we look ahead into sort of the the slow restart of ecotourism, uh, we're now recording this in 2021, and the light at the end of the COVID tunnel is slowly coming into view, and we know that it isn't just going to be like we wake up one morning and it's like, it's all over, it's all good, right back to where we were. It's a slow, gradual process. Just before we get to that, though, everyone likes hearing stories. Any particularly memorable stories? Uh, we start with Roy. Any stories that really stand up in your time in ecotourism and exploration? 
Well, I, I'm going to uh, riff off just what we were just talking about, because we were talking about the telequiet. I think Laura brought that up. And I had the pleasure of going out on a boat trip with Elder Moses Martin, who happens to be the elected chief of the Tolokiet people. Tolokiet is what, when we talk, if you heard the name Klaikwet sound, um, yes. that stems off the word Tolokiet. And on the boat, uh, we were out on that boat for maybe four hours with Moses. He's in his early 80s. He's been on the water since he was seven years old. And on the boat trip, he would stop and out of his 83 or so year old eyes, he would see sea otters off in the distance. And I consider myself, you know, a pretty adept wildlife viewer, but he was pulling things out that I could have never, ever seen. And sea otters and stellar sea lions and humpback and gray whales, tufted puffins and porpoise. And then uh, if that wasn't good enough, he uh, says, come look at my sonar. And underneath on the sonar, he's showing me big herring balls that are below uh, the, the water deep down several hundred feet. And he said, that's where the humpback whales are gonna come and feed on these herring wow. balls. And so, you know, as you, as you talk to somebody like that and you hear, he talked about, it is not these, all these animals that need to be managed, it is us. Mm -hmm. It's not the land, the wildlife, or the oceans. It's us that needs to be managed. And he says it doesn't matter. It always comes back to respect. And it doesn't matter what you do in life. You've got to do it with respect. And he said, when I was young, I was told that. And I said, well, what are the other things that we really need to know besides respect? And uh, he says, and my mom said, no. It's just respect. That's the first law. <laughs> there are no others. <laughs> just, Everything moves downstream. I, I, it's the headwater. Absolutely, from that. So it really was an eye-opening experience going out with somebody like that. He just encouraged us to watch, to listen, and to learn. And from that, you, with respect, you learn to live sustainably on the coast and seek a deeper understanding. And for me, uh, you know, because I teach in tourism and climate change and ecotourism, I encourage people to look at their own behavior changes, find out how you can go into areas and fertilize their economy and be respectful by, for instance, learning a piece of a language of a place that you're going. And boy, oh boy, I really felt honored to be able to hear some of those words from Moses Martin. For sure. Wow, I love that imagery of the herring ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how about on your end, Laura? Yeah, what an honor stories? to spend some time. It was. Yeah, definitely. What an honor to spend some time with Mr. Martin. That sounds so enlightening and inspirational. And his enthusiasm for what he shares really makes all the difference for guests. And I think, I think that really resonates with me too when I thought about you know how to wrap up and what story I wanted to share I thought about my favorite quote and I I love sharing quotes I'm a big quotes person and that is that the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away and I think that's why I ended up pursuing a career in ecotourism or in responsible tourism because through ecotourism and working as a guide or as an outdoor professional is 
where I get to share my passion for the natural world and genuine interest and respect and wonder for mother nature with guests or with students and hopefully ignite that fire in them to start their own journey. And I hope through those actions is how I'm leaving my legacy on our world. And as things open up here as 2021 rolls out, what will this industry look like? Well, I know now the industry looks like what I've seen through the through the media. Um, so people, if you may have noticed, perhaps some of your listeners have gone on webcams and looked at African watering holes, yeah. eagle nests, <laughs> but through webcam, essentially webcam travel. Yeah, um, virtual tourism is a really neat area developing for sure. The New York Times created 40 articles this year since January called The World Through a Lens, getting photojournalists to go out and transport readers virtually to some of the planet's most beautiful and intriguing places because people weren't going to those places. And of course, building up that anticipation for the future of going out again. So that's where we've been at now this year. And maybe your question, Ian, goes to, well, what, what is it that we, it will look like going forward? Yeah, what, what will this look like as we restart gradually the ecotourism industry? I would bet that all of us who have washed our hands more and thought more about physical <laughs> distance, um, yeah. that we are going to be having more of the health and safety issues that we've started on now. A lot of that's going to continue even post-pandemic. And yeah, I think that's a that's a good thing because, you know, we still have seasonal flus. And if we could, if I could get less flus or, or colds in the future, I'd be happy with that too. Yeah, full yeah, agreement. definitely. <laughs> Laura, do you have others to add? Yeah, I do. I I really enjoy talking about this topic. I think it's kind of really cool to think about the future of tourism and how it will evolve. And I think some of those social distancing measures and enhanced safety protocols are going to be extended and kind of become the new permanent normal. It brings me back to a day in one of my tourism courses when my professor was talking about how prior to 9-11, you could just take your ticket and walk right onto an airplane with relatively few security measures. And since, since 9-11, the unfortunate incident, mm. air travel has really changed. You know, now you allot an extra 45 minutes to go through security or an extra hour prior to your flight. So I imagine it will just become you know, aspects will just become incorporated in our travel. Everything from hopefully um, more flexible cancellation or refund policies, contactless options, I think will become really big. And hopefully we'll also see trends towards greener and more sustainable and low impact itineraries. I know that traveling closer to home and exploring your province has really been an action that's increased this year. And I think slow travel itineraries are increasing in popularity. Um, with travelers seeking more of an unrushed and deeper connection to nature and their destination. And it's also a, a much safer alternative to mass tourism. It is, you know, the idea of sit spots has, I think, gotten a lot of wonderful attention over the past few months as people have sought sit spots, magic spots, many different names, just to be with nature and just quickly, one of my great experiences from being out on Vancouver Island was at Souk Potholes Provincial Park and right along the river there and just spending about three hours sketching the dippers, which for listeners who aren't familiar, it's this 
chunky wren-like bird. It's a songbird. You know, it looks superficially like a wren, yet it goes right under the water to fish and, and get invertebrates. And I just spent three hours sketching these dippers, and it was probably the most memorable part of the trip, and there was nothing rushed about it. There was nothing other than just really, 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 really connecting with that time and space. And I'm all for more trips that are slower paced and are based on less rushing around to different areas, because I think there's a lot of meaning people can get from that. I would agree. What an evocative picture that you paint there, Ian. I can certainly appreciate that. And it's something I've tried to do with my students over many years. I'll take them into an old growth forest and I'll ask them to take off their shoes and their socks and go walk out on the moss and stand there and take time, usually because it's in the middle of a class, I'm only giving them about five minutes, but five minutes is a long time Mm -hmm. to just stand in one place and observe because often we don't even do that, let alone three hours sitting and sketching. And students always come back and say how powerful of of a activity that was with their feet connected directly to the land. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people have probably perhaps learned that that is so important in our lives. And uh, hopefully uh, going forward, we will uh, remember that and we won't forget how important that is. Yes, that's beautiful. I'm sitting here in my kitchen smiling, just soaking up the good energy from this conversation. (laughs) Well, it's been a great pleasure having both of you along. This is our first recorded podcast episode of the new year of 2021. And thank you both Roy Jansen and Laura Chu for joining us this morning it's actually afternoon where i am in the eastern time zone but eh, it all blends together (laughs) (laughs) thank you for the opportunity ian it's been a pleasure yes thank you very much it's been a real honor and i think green teacher is such a good resource for all environmental educators well it's been an enriching past few months of cross-pollinating and making partnerships with various individuals and organizations and i'm so glad that both of you are now part of that broader community. Thank you. By evening, the wind has largely subsided and the white caps have all but disappeared. With the sun hanging low in the western sky, viewers have their eyes fixed on the ocean. Slightly to the north, a spout breaks the pleasant monotony of the sea before a mottled gray form rises to the surface. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. In our ongoing efforts to engage with people from as many different communities as possible, we will speak to guests whose views may variously differ from or align with yours. Green Teacher is an inclusive space and we welcome people from all backgrounds, perspectives and faiths in a collective spirit of collaboration and exploration.